Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are continuing our study in the Psalms of Ascent. It's a shorter message series by comparisons with some of the other series we've done around here. Uh, Typically, we'll take almost six months to go through a entire book. This one will be a little bit shorter. Uh, We should be done the middle of next month. But the Psalms of Ascent are this collection of travel songs. There's Psalm 120 through 134, and they were sang by the Hebrew people as they traveled to Jerusalem on the three times a year they went to Jerusalem for festival celebration. And we talked about this last week, but if you weren't here, there were three festivals that the Jewish people went to Jerusalem every year to celebrate. They went to celebrate Passover in the spring. They went to go celebrate Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks uh, in early summer, and they went to go celebrate Sukkah or the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles uh, in fall, September, October. And when they would travel to Jerusalem for this time of worship, they would get their families together and they would also travel with other families. So it was not uncommon during these feast times to see groups of 100, 200 people traveling from town to town into Jerusalem to make it to the temple to worship the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, there wasn't always a temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the the temple actually wasn't built until David, King David's son Solomon built it. David wanted to build God a a, a temple, but all he had was the tabernacle structure and God told him that you're not going to build a house for me, your son is. So historically what took place was you've, you've got the people of Israel being set free from bondage in Egypt. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years and under the leadership of Joshua, they come into the promised land. They don't do a very good job of conquering the promised land. And then we have this time through Joshua and through Judges where everyone kind of did what was right in their own eyes and things just went completely bonkers. No one was really facilitating the temple structure, the the tabernacle structure. In fact, some of the pieces of the the tabernacle structure um, that God gave to Moses, they got stolen, like frequently. Like the Ark of the Covenant one time got stolen by the Philistines. Like they didn't care much for this stuff. So we find that this, the, the main piece of furniture for this tabernacle structure, the Ark of the Covenant, was placed at this guy's house and just kind of forgotten about. And then we got this guy named David, King David. He steps up to the plate. God anoints him as king and says, you're going you're gonna to usurp this other king, Saul. You're going to become king. There's a whole story with him growing up and what it was like to grow up into that. But eventually he becomes king. And the first thing he does is he gets that Ark of the Covenant from that guy's house and he brings it to Jerusalem. Now, what's fascinating about what he does is he doesn't set up the tabernacle structure with an outer court and an inner court and then the holies and the holy of holies. What he does is he sets up a tent with open doors and puts the Ark right in the center so that anybody who's walking by can look straight into the tent and see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this was unheard up until this time. You didn't do this. The only person that saw the Ark of the Covenant was the high priest, and he only did that once a year when it was time to come in and offer the sacrifices. So David, 
He did this because he understood God's ultimate goal. He wanted to be with his people. And so David said, I'm going to fulfill God's desires. I'm going to put his presence right out in the open with everybody. David said, I want to build a home for the Lord. God said, you're not going to do it. Your son Solomon is going to do it. So David passes away. Solomon takes over. And one of the first initiatives he creates is this temple, this massive structure that mirrored the tabernacle that was the people of God wandered around the wilderness with. God gave Moses this tabernacle. And it was the structure. It was essentially not just a tent and a temporary moving structure. It was this permanent structure fixed in the city of Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting, and the reason I'm telling this is because some of the Psalms of Ascent were written by David, which means even though these songs were sung by the people who were traveling to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, some of them were actually written before there was a temple even built. The one we're going to read today, Psalm 122, was written by David, and it doesn't reference the, tabern- or the temple because there was no temple yet. It references the city surrounding the temple and how important the city of God is to the presence of God and why that's important. So I want to give you the structure because we said last week that these were a collection of songs that the people of God sang on the way to the temple to worship. But some of these songs were even sung by the people before the temple was built. That's how old some of these songs are. So we've been going through Psalm 120, 121, and we've been following how they tell the story of someone who left home and just turned their back on the sins of the world and desired to go towards the Lord. It's the sense of being repentant. Psalm 121, there's this sense of being surrounded by God's faithfulness. But in this collection of travel songs, we are invited by the psalmist to consider how much of our life is filled with travel and journeys. And I don't mean just vacations and during the summer you're going to go to the beach or whatever. I'm talking about um, metaphorically how much of your life can be described as going from one place to the next. Maybe physically, but also emotionally, spiritually. That we are a people who are always on the move. And the reason why we're a people who are always on the move is because we can't really find our home here because we're not citizens of this place. We're citizens of another place. And the reason why we wander and there's an uncertainty in our soul and we can't just settle and we're always going from one place to the next is because it's a reflection of the fact that this isn't our home and and, and all that moving from one place to the next will eventually end up in us arriving in the final destination in the presence of our Lord. Okay, so that's why this is important. So we're studying the Psalms of Ascent because as these people were singing, worship songs, as they headed to Jerusalem, we see ourselves traveling from place to place. And there's an invitation to fill your lives with these songs about God and to God to remind yourselves that you're not just going to work. You're going to work in the presence of the Lord. And while you're there, the work you're doing is as unto the Lord. That everything about your life is not just a wandering with no purpose. Everything about your life is filled with the presence of God. And we are invited to be more aware of that so that our life is a sense of worship. Okay? Isn't duty. We're not just going through the motions. We're invited to see everything we do. Literally everything we do. As a journey from one place to the next. And it's worship unto our God. 
Cool? All right, so that's why we're studying it. So 122. We're going to go 122 and 123 today. But let's pick it up in Psalm 122. Um, if, the, if we're tracking with, with the tracks on this playlist, 120, we left our homes. 121, we're surrounded by the presence of the Lord on our journey. So he fills us with our journey. And 122, we have finally arrived in Jerusalem. So let's read it. Psalm 122, verse 1 says, Man, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord. As we, excuse me, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. Are you starting to see kind of the imagery of what he's trying to paint here? What it's like for the people of God to finally show up at the city and to just be overwhelmed by what they see. That this is God's city. And what's interesting is that there's this idea for the people of the world who are not Hebrews to think that their God, their false God, is the God over their people. And the God over Israel is the God over Israel. But the claim of Yahweh is not that he's the God over Israel. His claim is that he is the God over the entire earth. So the whole earth, everywhere you go, there's one place on the whole planet where God's presence meets the physical realm. There's one spot where there's this overlap of heaven with earth, and that's where God has decided to show up amidst his people. And so there's a lot surrounding the city, and there's a lot surrounding this temple. And all of the imagery should be reflecting the fact that God is here in the midst of his people, but he doesn't just want to be in the midst of his people. He wants to redeem mankind, not just Israel, all of the world, and this is just the starting point. So all of this imagery is filling the lives, and, excuse me, the minds of the Hebrew people as they show up and they see and they're looking. Man, this is the place where the tribes were invited to come up and worship. Why? Because it's not good enough for you to worship at your house. You got to go to the presence of the Lord. You can't just do things your way. You have to do things his way. You can't just say that my tribe is enough. He gathers all the tribes together and they are forced to worship together as one people, not just Judah, not just Ephraim. No, all of you are God's people and none of you are more special than the other ones. You gather together in this place and this is the place where the, the thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. This is the place where justice is declared. We'll get into that in a minute, but let's finish it. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Okay, now let's go back to the beginning. Now that we've read the whole thing, let's kind of slice this thing up and break it down and understand what the psalmist is saying, and then we'll talk about how this is important for us. So verse 1, we're told that this is a psalm of David, 
And I talked about him writing this before there was a temple. So the emphasis from Psalm 122 is not on the actual temple, it's on the city. It's the structure around God's presence. And this is really important, especially when we start talking about how this applies to us today. There is a structure built around God's presence, and that structure is just as important to declare the glory and the goodness of God as the glory and the goodness of God. Because if the structure is not in place, then it doesn't model God correctly. You follow me? Think about it like this. If a Christian declares to the world that my God is the God of the world, but that Christian doesn't live like God has commanded them to live, then they're being a poor image bearer to the world about what God's character is like. God is an honest God who always keeps his word. But this guy who says he's an ambassador for that God can't stop lying. So what does it say about your God if you're speaking on his behalf? Is your God a liar? The city, the structure surrounding God's presence is important because it communicates things about God's character. It shows what he values and the kind of God that he is. So when, the, when, when the, the, the psalmist first enters into the city, he is taken back by what he sees. He starts by being overwhelmed with excitement at just the thought of going. But when he shows up and his feet are standing within the gates, he's confronted by this presence of the city. Now there's kind of a, um, there's an ambiguous verb form here in verse 2. It says, um, my translation, I'm reading for the ESV translation, it says, our feet have been standing within your gates. Some of you, your translation might say, um, our feet are standing within your gates. It may sound um, like it's like a present tense. It may sound like it's past tense. And the reason why there's that confusion is because of the verb form. There's no real consensus on which way that should stand. So this verse, verse 2, could be read in the sense that our feet are already there even before we left. Somebody told me, Let's go to the presence of the Lord. And I told them, man, I'm already there. My feet are already in the presence of the Lord. I can't wait to get there because I'm already there. I live there. The other interpretation, depending on the, the verb form that you pick, could be that we have finally arrived on our journey. All right? And I'm, I don't have a, I'm not really partial to either one. I think both of them are good, so I'm fine with it either way. It doesn't change the interpretation of it. It just, both sides kind of give it a little bit of weight. So it doesn't really matter what translation you hold or how it falls. This could be living with a sense that, man, I'm always in the presence of the Lord. And when you say, I want to go, I'm, I'm there. I can't wait to be there. Or we have finally arrived. And when I arrive, what I'm taking in is heavy. And that's what we get to in verse 3. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. And this is verses 3 through 5. What we find is a reflection of what the city is to the psalmist. This is David, but he's talking about God's city. And the psalmist is singing that upon his arrival, when he shows up, he sees what the city of God stands for. I want you to imagine what it was like to be a Hebrew who just traveled, let's just say, man, 100 miles on foot with a crowd of 100 people. And you've got young kids who want to run ahead and not listen. You've got old folks who are just like, they're just trying to get along. I mean, imagine how hard it would be to like walk through the desert. And you finally arrive after your long trip. And the first thing that greets you is this massive city on a hill. And you start walking up to it and you pass through the outer gates and you come to the city and the city is just bustling 
with the people of God. And there's this sense everywhere you look that like God's presence is filling his people. And this city stands for something. It's not just a city. Like there's lots of cities, but this one, this one stands for something. What does it stand for? The psalmist says this city stands for security. It stands for community, thankfulness, justice, peace. When I come in, this city, this thing I have entered into, it stands for all of the characteristics of God that I hold in such high regard. I'm seeing them modeled in the physical bricks on the wall, just the way that they have been orchestrated. Everything fits into its perfect spot. And I can't help be reminded of the way that God has called all the, all, all the different tribes, the different backgrounds, the different people to come in, and he just fits them exactly the way they need to be. Nothing's out of place. There's no holes in the walls. There's nothing cracking. Everything is reflecting the fact that there is order in our God, and he has established this from the foundations of the earth. And that's a way to finish the journey, right? You show up and you're like, man, everywhere I look, I'm seeing unity. I'm seeing community. I'm seeing invitations to enter into something that is bigger than me and my little family out in the, in, 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 out in the field somewhere that we just traveled 100 years from or 100 miles from. We're finally here, and we have entered into something greater than ourselves. And I can feel it in the air. And then he starts looking around, verse 5. This is the thrones for the judgment were set. And he starts seeing that the structure that God has set in this city, it rests on the sense of justice and equity. Now when you start throwing words out that culture has adopted and tried to redefine, it makes it difficult to hear the word of God, but Justice and equity are biblical words. And we talked about this back in Isaiah. I think it was Isaiah 5, maybe. Isaiah says, I'm looking in the midst of the city, and I'm, I'm looking for, for justice. But all I see is bloodshed. And the Hebrew words, they kind of rhyme. He says, I'm looking in the midst of all the people for mispah, and all I find is mishpah. And, and, and I'm looking for, for justice. I'm looking for equity. I'm looking for righteousness. I'm looking for sadaka. But all I find is sa'aka. I'm looking for, for people doing the right thing, and all I find is people doing the wrong thing. So this theme carries all the way through the prophets. But the psalmist enters into the city, and when he's looking at the bricks, when he's looking at the people, when he looks at the throne of David that's been established and the promises God has given David about what he's going to do, specifically in 2 Samuel 8.15, about how God is going to establish David's throne as a throne of justice and equity, what he says is, I'm walking into the city, and I'm seeing that what God is doing in this city is right. That no one's getting more... Uh, um, more opportunity than someone else. When, we, when we're talking about justice, everyone gets justice. You don't get less justice or more justice because you own more or you have less or because you have some record or everyone's getting judged the same. Nobody is special. We're all God's people. And the psalmist is walking in and he's like, man, this is different than what I see out in the world. And there's this sense that starts to well up on the inside of him towards the end of verse 5. That what he's seeing is not reserved for just this city. 
that what he sees in this city is actually God's rescue plan for the entire world. That's an N.T. Wright quote. I can't claim that. But he says this. He says that God rescued Israel, but Israel also needed rescuing. So God rescued Israel, and his plan in rescuing Israel was that through Israel, the whole world would be, would be rescued. And so this, there's this sense that when the psalmist goes to Jerusalem, what he's doing is getting an educational course on what God is not just doing in Israel, but what his plan is to the entire world. And we see this in the prophets. Isaiah says this a lot too. Ezekiel says this. But this idea that when he walks into the city, I'm seeing justice, I'm seeing righteousness, I'm seeing unity, I'm seeing community, I'm seeing peace, and I and it's not just reserved for here. This is just the training ground for what the whole earth. Eventually, this is going to spill over the walls of the city, and this is going to spread over the entire earth. And everywhere you look, there's going to be righteousness, and there's going to be justice, and there's going to be unity, and there's going to be God lifted high above every other God. And so all of this language is filled in the song. The guy walks in, and he's like, man, I'm glad to be here. I didn't know it was like this. Because what I'm seeing, it challenges every part of who I am. Because what I see in the city is not what I see in myself. What I see happening in this city is not what I see happening in my home. What's happening in this city is not what happened on the journey here. There was disunity. People were complaining in the back seat. They didn't like the food we packed. And we show up, and I don't see any of that. And so what I see challenges me. I don't need the city to be more like my family. I need my family to be more like this city. You see where this is headed? So when he gets into verse 6, he says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and my companions' sake, I will say, Peace be with you. The whole atmosphere of the city is overwhelming to this guy, and it drives him to prayer. He starts praying when he's confronted with this. This atmosphere, man, what I'm seeing, I want it to last forever. I don't want it to just stay here. I need to find a way to take what's going on here and bring it home with me. I need this in my house. I need this in my heart. I need this in my kids. How do I get this out of here and back home with me. And she starts praying, man, let this always go on. Let this be here in the summer when I come back, in the fall when I come back. Let this city always stand as something greater than what this, the world stands for. Because I need a place that I can go to and be reminded that the way I've been living isn't good enough. I need a collection of people that when I walk into the walls, I'm challenged that the way I've been seeing things is the wrong way to look at it. That the things that I've believed for most of my life, almost all of them are a lie, but I don't see that until I'm confronted with the truth, until I'm surrounded with a city of truth. That's what this city is standing for. So the psalmist comes in and He's starting to pray. I want this to continue. I want it to be for everybody. I'm going to pray for all of my brothers and all of my companions. Everybody I traveled with, I want this for them. And then the psalmist ends with this line in verse 9, I will seek your good. 
And he's saying this city stands for something that God wants all for the entire mankind. And the traveler makes this commitment that he's going to be a good steward of this message. What's going on in here? I'm going to take as my mission to go spread to the rest of the world. See, that's what Jerusalem was. It was a city where God's stuff, God's ways were the most important. And when you enter into this, you're so overwhelmed with it, there should cultivate this desire to start praying that this sort of stuff starts affecting you, so you take it with you and you leave it. Now, what I want to do for a moment is I want to take what the psalmist discovered about Psalm 122, and I want to start applying it and looking at it in our lives through the life of, uh, excuse me, through the light of the cross. Because here's what you have when you read texts from the Old Testament. There's this thing that seemed to be taking place in the life of people who followed God. And there seems to be this invitation from them to follow in their footsteps in the same way. But we don't, we don't need to go to Jerusalem. There's not a city you go to. There's other things that, the, that God is doing on the life, in the life of us. And so what are the expectations that you see in this psalm that are challenging us? Well, the first one I would say from the very beginning of the psalm is the expectation of living with excitement when we gather together. They said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And I was glad when they said that. There should be this sense of, man, just overflowing joy at the mere thought that you get to spend time with God and his people. And listen, if the idea of going to church is like the last thing that you, need, that you want to do, two things need to happen. Either one, you need to find a different church. Or two, you need to find a different God. Because the one you serve is not Yahweh. Because if he's not cultivating inside of you a desire to want him more and to get close with his people, there are some fundamental things broken that need to be fixed. And it might be the community, but it might be the fact that you're serving a false Jesus, a false gospel, a false God. You may have been sold a different God than the God of the Bible. You may have been told that, man, he, he is in it for your entertainment. And the whole purpose of going to church is to be entertained. And if the show isn't good enough, then that's on them. That's not on you. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the invitation of the Psalms of Ascent. And there should create some tension. Well, well, why am I not excited to gather with the people of God? Is it something with the people of God? Is there something inside me? Is there something in them that needs to change? Is there something in me that needs to change? Is there something in both of us that needs to change? It creates this tension that if there's not an excitement when you gather, the, just the mere thought of gathering with the people of God, then we're out of line with what our ancestors lived. And then there's this expectation of cultivating an atmosphere of Jerusalem. You see this in uh, 1 Peter 2.5 when, when Peter says, you are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. He's he's. He's introducing this idea that there's no longer a city we go to because we are now the city of God. There's no longer physical blocks because the blocks he's building are you and me. He's building up this new amazing temple. He's building up this new structure called the church, and each one of you are bricks in this structure. 
And the way that were arranged reflects the way the bricks in Jerusalem were arranged. They were placed in order. There was a unity. It spoke of community. Everything was in its place. It was solid. It didn't fall apart. You couldn't lean on it and it would fall over. There was some sense of structure and strength to the people of God. And Peter is trying to invite us into this idea that God's structure that he is currently building is made up of you and me. So how do we look at the Psalms of Ascent through the lens of the cross? That there's not a city we go to anymore because, guys, we are the city. We are the structure that houses the presence of God. God fills his people, and the church is that city that should accurately reflect the character of God. That is why it's so crucial for the people of God to live the way we've been commanded to live. Because what we're doing is modeling to the world what the character of our God looks like. And when they show up to church and they say, man, this place is so friendly. Well, you're darn right it's friendly. Because our God is friendly. We're not inventing this so that you'll come back. We're doing this because this is just who we are. We like being together because our God made us a family. When we currently, or previously, we didn't have anybody. We were, we were wandering around in the darkness, and then he called us into this marvelous light, and now I'm a part of something bigger than I've ever been in my entire life. And it makes me happy. It makes me so happy that when people say, hey, we, let's go to church, I get excited about the idea of going to church. This structure is modeling the character of God, and it's found in this original structure of Jerusalem. There's a sense of unity and diversity and security, community, all found within the church. I think Psalm 122 also creates an expectation for the church, the city of God, to be praying for each other, to seek the good for one another. But there's this also this sense that the expectation of the city of God, this new true Jerusalem that's set on a hill, should be calling the nations to worship. Now follow me here. Because this is a really, really important component to reading the Bible. When you see this structure in the Old Testament, this place that people went to that spoke things about God's character, and on the inside of it was this structure that resided God's presence. And you see in the New Testament these writers inviting us to think of ourselves more like that structure. We're now a city. We're now, the church is now this city and the people of God hold the presence of God. We're like this new temple. There's this sense in the Old Testament that God's desire was not to just lock it into Jerusalem, but to let that spill out to the nations, to call the nations to come and worship the Lord. At the end of days, Isaiah tells us that the prophecy ultimately to be fulfilled is that all the nations will come to the mountain of the Lord, the highest mountain above every other one, and they will say, teach us your ways. We don't want our ways anymore. We want your ways. We're forsaking our life, and we want God. There's this sense that the, the city of God should be calling the world to forsake that garbage and come and taste and see. But here's the problem. We're not inviting anybody to come and taste and see. We're inviting everybody to come and feed on the things they're already eating all week long. And what we offer is a cheap knockoff of the things they're tasting out there. These things that have been created by cultures of darkness, and then we come and we try to reproduce them as clever ways to catch non-believers, and they're just like, mm, I mean, worship's good, but like, 
if I just came for music, like I can just go to a bar on Saturday night and listen to a better band than the worship team. If I want good coffee, I don't have to come to church. I'll just like go to a coffee shop and drink coffee. If I want to hear somebody give me a clever message, like I've got plenty of that on YouTube. But what's the one thing the world can't offer? Genuine heartfelt worship that looks at Jesus. What's the one thing the world isn't offering? Solid biblical teaching. We have forsaken the things that are supposed to be fundamental to being the city of God. We're trying to do everything that the world does, and we're not doing a very good job. And the one thing that the Lord told us to do, we're not doing very good at all. It's like he gave us this mission, do this. All right, got it. I'm going to do it like this. No, no, no. Do this. Cool. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it like this. It's maddening because it creates this soul, this, this cycle and the structure where we're looking at each other just like, I can't figure out why nobody wants to come to church. I can tell you why nobody wants to come to church. It's because you're not giving them Jesus. When they walk into the gates, they don't see unity. They don't see a heartfelt desire to forsake this world and treasure him above all of the things. They see invitations to love Jesus, but also love all these other things we talk about during the service that were manufactured at the hands of man. There's this bizarre mixing, and we think that people are going to get the message, and we're confused when they don't. So what I'm saying is that there was this sense in the Old Testament that the city proclaimed something about God to the rest of the nations, and that carries over into the New Testament to the church, carrying the responsibility to accurately reflect God's character to the nations and to preach the gospel faithfully. All right, so let me break this down. I said that this component is important to understanding and reading the New Testament. There, there is, um, there's this component about prophecy that's really important to understand when you're reading the Bible. So prophecy is fulfillment, okay? So if a prophet in the Old Testament said, God's going to do this thing, and then God literally does this thing, that's prophecy fulfillment, Okay? But there's another way that prophecy can be fulfilled. The other way that prophecy can be fulfilled is in the retelling of common themes throughout the years. So let me give you an example of this. There's this idea that God's plans are revealed in the retelling of biblical themes. And an example would be in Ezekiel 16.1. God is talking to Ezekiel and he calls him son of man. God tells Ezekiel, son of man, tell Israel this message. And Ezekiel, the son of man, tells Israel the message. And then we find in John 3.14 that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And this son of man is telling Israel what God told him to tell them. Are you following me? There's this common theme, this retelling. There's this idea that there is a son of man character, and it's retold ultimately and fulfilled fully in the person of Jesus. Let me give you another one. 
There's this sense, and, and Matthew gives us this, we talked about this when we did the Matthew series, but in Matthew 2.15, there's a sense that Jesus is fulfilling this thing that Israel never could, all right? Hosea 11.1, uh, there's this scripture of um, God calling my son, Israel, out of Egypt, all right? The sense that Israel is God's son, he chose this, this nation as his son, and he called them up out of Egypt. And then that is replayed and retold in the person of Jesus, and it's fulfilled ultimately as a prophecy in the person of Jesus. When he goes down into Egypt to flee from Herod, and he comes back up. But it doesn't end there, because we have this, this, this character, this theme, this Jesus, or this Israel, who uh, is, is disobedient to God and then wanders in the wilderness for 40 years and fails tests regularly. They complain. They're upset about food. They pass through water to salvation. There's this season of exile. There's this life in the sense of this, this character, Israel, in the, in the heart of God that doesn't quite live up to what they're supposed to be living up. And then that character is retold in the person of Jesus, according to Matthew and Hosea, that there is, Jesus is, is almost like the true Israel. He's the real Israel. He's the Israel that when he was wandering, he, when, after he passed through water, remember he was baptized? He, Jesus passed through water just like Israel passed through water, but on the other side didn't complain to God about what kind of diet he had. See, he, right after he passed through water, he went and spent 40 days in the wilderness. And he took the test that Israel took in the wilderness, and he passed when they failed. There's these common themes where God fulfills his word to his people in ways that we didn't expect. And God says, I said this about my people. I said I gave you this theme. I gave you this title, this name. We saw it in Isaiah with the servant. Isaiah literally calls Israel my servant. Your job was to spread my fame to the nations, and you failed because you wanted the nations more than you wanted my fame. And then Israel fulfills us. He becomes the suffering servant who does spread God's fame through all of the nations. And this is, brings me to the reason why I'm talking about this. Exodus 19, 6, parrots in 1 Peter 2, 9 this sense that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. That in some sense, that God's people were called to be a holy nation, and they failed. And now God's people, the church, are called to be a holy nation. Are you following where I'm going with this? The idea is that the city of God theme in 122 is retold in the life of the church. That's why it's so important for us to understand the imagery of things like Jerusalem and the temple, because these things hold weight when it comes to the New Testament writers helping us understand what we're supposed to be doing with our daily lives. You weren't just saved to go back to work and do your own thing. You were saved so that you can then become, in some sense, a temple where the presence of God res resides on the inside of you. But you're not a temple that's locked in Jerusalem. You're a mobile temple that's now going. So now there's not one temple where God's presence is and everyone's got to go. Now there's millions of us wandering everywhere. And every conversation that you have with a non-believer is an opportunity for them to be confronted with a holy God. Yeah. 
These themes are important, and they're really important as we read through Psalms. And I'm bringing this up now because when we finish this message series, we're going to start going into the writings of John, and we're going to study the book of Revelation. And that is essential to understand when you get into the book of Revelation because there's no book in the New Testament that has more Old Testament than the book of Revelation. So let's go to Psalm 123. Verse 1, it says, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, the Lord our God. And we're going to keep on looking at you until you have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorns of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. So the psalmist has now entered into the city of God and he's looking around and he's overwhelmed at what he sees and the atmosphere by what he sees pulls his eyes to the Lord. Because here's what he does. He looks in and he sees the handiwork of God. I see you did that and you did this in the life of that person and you saved that person and you healed this person and you're clearly at work in this family because that guy is not the way he used to be. And I'm looking at this woman, and she, she used to be contentious. Whew. I didn't like being around her. This person over here couldn't stop telling lies. And now I come in the presence of the Lord, and, and all I see is them talking about your goodness. And they're not like they used to be. They're different. You're changing people. And everywhere I look, that's all I see. And because I'm looking at your handiwork, and because I see all the things you're doing, my eyes are drawn to you. I want to know the guy who's behind all this. See, that's why Jesus performed miracles. It's the reason why he raised the little girl from the dead and then sometime in the future she died again. It's the reason why he healed people who were sick, but then sometime in the future they all eventually died. What was even the point of this person being healed if they're going to die one day? Because the goal is not the healing. The goal is for the healing to draw the eyes of the people to the healer. That's the whole point of miracles. That's why we have miracles. Because there's something that invites you to look beyond the thing you're seeing to the person who has created all of this. That's why when you look out in creation, all creation is preaching to the faithful God. All creation is crying out because creation is designed not to look pretty. A sunset is not there for you to say, huh, isn't that nice? A sunset is there so you look at it and say, who put that there? Who painted this? Who invented this? This is the reason why God has advanced modern medicine. Not so that we can live longer, happier lives, so that people all around the world who are dissecting the body and looking at all the wonderful ways it, it moves and, and interacts with each other can step back and say, who made this thing? It's always the same end goal, to lift your eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. 
This is an invitation to look at God himself. And then verse 3 and 4, you see the second voice enter in. 1 and 2, to you I lift my eyes. And then verse 3, have mercy upon us. And we talked about this last week. There's, there's this sense that the people are singing. Now, this is important for us to understand. Like, the journey from your home to Jerusalem, it didn't take one song, right? You're singing through all of these tracks multiple times before you arrive there. And so even though you're singing about arriving and what you're going to see when you get there, you may not necessarily be there. So they're on track track 123, but they haven't arrived yet, even though they're singing like they have arrived. And what's happening here is the group they're traveling with, someone is saying, man, I lift my eyes to you, Lord, because I see all the things you're doing, and I want more of you. And somebody in the back shouts out, have mercy on us, O Lord. As we start looking at you, we start realizing how broken we actually are. We're not as good as we thought, because when we look at you in light of us, I got a lot of work to do. I didn't think I had a lot of work to do until I looked at you. And then when I beheld your beauty, I realized I'm not even close to being there yet. And so when I behold your beauty, I start crying out, Lord, have mercy on us. Why? Because I'm starting to reflect on who I am, how broken I am, and where I came from. The contempt of my homeland. Everywhere, that, that word contempt literally means laughing stock. I'm so tired of the land that I lived in and the, and the city I grew up in. Every time I talked about the Lord, all people did was laugh at me. I'm so tired of contempt. And I realize that I'm a mockery. I realize that I say things that I want to be even though before I am them. I'm, I realize I'm a hypocrite, but I can't stop staring at you, Jesus, and I need you to change me. And I don't need, please, please don't look at me like my neighbors look at me. I realize that I'm a hypocrite. Please show me mercy even though I'm not worthy to be in your presence. That's what's filled in these verses. So let's take a moment and reflect on what the psalmist is speaking to us a couple thousand years in the future. He's giving us an invitation to look at Jesus. Jesus' generosity and his guidance. What you're doing in the city, I want you to do in me. And how generous you are at not playing favorites and not only picking certain people, but having, having no sense, of, like no respecter of persons. Like you, you call nobodies out of nowhere to be your mouthpiece. God, I want in on that. I want to be part of that. I'm a nobody from nowhere. I need you to call me out. I've had enough of this world telling me I'm nothing. I need you to tell me that you love me. I need you to show grace to me. This is an invitation to look at Jesus, and also it's an invitation to bring our complaints to Jesus. Do you see what they're doing here when they start looking at the Lord? They start realizing the deficit that they have in their own lives, and they realize the deficit in the world. The easiest thing to do is start complaining about the, the gap between what you want to be and what is. You watch the news for five minutes, you're a wreck. What do you do? You call other people who are wrecks to complain about how bad everyone is a wreck. 
But the Psalm 123 invites us to consider the possibility that the best person to complain to is actually Jesus and not your friend who can't do anything about it because they're in just a bad of a shape as you are. And then there's this expectation to leave worldliness behind. This thing that we left, we don't want to bring it with us. We've had enough of this contempt, and we're not bringing any of that with us. I don't want to bring a sarcastic attitude. I don't want to look at your people through eyes of complaint. I don't want to see what you're doing and say, well, we'll see if it lasts. I want to be filled with the same kind of grace that you fill your city with. I want to be a part of this and not that. Now, the ascending journey of the Psalms of sentence, I don't know about you, but for me, it's getting really exciting. There's this sense of leaving a city and entering into a new city. We left these cities out in the desert that are filled with men of war who lie to their wives, and we're entering into the city that models justice and righteousness. And when we see God working in the city, we understand that he doesn't want to just work in the city. He wants to work in us. And now in some way, we are the city, and we want to be a part of what God is doing so that we can take what's here out to the rest of the world. And we want to declare his goodness to the whole world. So as we close today, I think it's important for us to take a moment to just reflect on Psalm 122 and 123. So I've gathered a series of questions that I think will help you wrestle with Psalm 122 and 123 as you leave today. The first being this, does Psalm 122 reflect how you feel about the church? Are you filled with joy at the, the, the opportunity to gather with God's people, or does that seem like pulling teeth? Do you see the role of the church to model God's character to the nations? And then in Psalm 123, do you see your prayers reflecting what God wants and his mission for the world? Are you looking at him? Are you beholding the works of his hands? Or are you spending most of your time beholding the works of your own hands? Or beholding the works of someone else's hands, either lusting after those works or having contempt because they're not living up to your expectations? There's a lot of things we can fill our minds with, but there's one thing that the Bible invites us to fill our minds with, and that's God's work, not ours. So, these psalms are reflection, but they're also an invitation. And my desire for us is to respond to that invitation. To let these songs fill the air of our lives as we journey from one place to the other in the same way that they filled the air of the Hebrew people. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.